welcome to episode 59 of the Tech Done Right podcast, Table XI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. Our guest today is James Coglin. James has written an extraordinary programming book called Building Git. In it, he describes the inner workings of the Git source control tool by re-implementing a substantial part of it in Ruby, including commits, diffs, branching, and networking, pretty much all the parts of Git that you would use every day. Along the way, he shows not just how Git works, but also details of some of the algorithms it uses. There's also a lot about building complex systems in general, and it has some great examples of test-driven development. James and I also talk about implementing in a high-level language like Ruby versus a lower-level language like C. It's a unique book, and I've really been looking forward to talking to James about it for some time, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. Before we start the show, one brief message. TableXI offers training for developer and product teams. If you want me to come to your place of business and run an interactive hands-on workshop, I would very much like to do that. We can help your developer team learn topics like testing or Rails and JavaScript or managing legacy code, or we can help your entire product team improve their agile process. Also, if you're in the Chicago area, be on the lookout for our new public workshops, including our How to Buy Custom Software workshop, which is currently scheduled for the first week of May, and hopefully more to come. For more information, email us at workshops at tablexi.com or find us on the web at tablexi.com slash workshops. And now, here's the show. James, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Noel. I'm James. I'm a developer based in London. Mostly do stuff with Ruby and JavaScript on the web, do a bunch of open source things. And I've recently been working on a project to rebuild Git. Right. And that's what we're going to talk about here. James has just released a book. It's about two weeks as we record this. It is called Building Git. And in it, you re-implement Git pretty much in its entirety, right? I would say in its entirety, but most of the stuff that you tend to use every day, like all the sort of core building blocks. Yeah, there's there's a lot there. It, it covers commits, it covers diffs, it covers branching, almost all your day-to-day things, it re-implemented in Ruby. So I guess the first question is, what made you want to do this, and what do you hope people will get out of watching your step-by-step re-implementation of Git? My own reason for wanting to do it sort of changed as the project went on, and the more that I learned about it. I initially had the idea because... So I've seen in a couple of situations in workplaces that I've been in, people sort of doing like very basic versions of like, let's just build a version control system quickly to understand how it works. And I've seen a lot of people struggle with using Git and like develop presentations. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to teach people about Git internals for a bit so that they understand it better. And that gave me this sort of initial idea to go, oh, well, maybe I could put a workshop together where... I'll just build like, you know, the, the real, real basics and walk people through it. And then I sort of got carried away, I suppose. A, a lot of things feeding into this in terms of like the way that I think programming is taught. Um, a lot of that is my own personal biases. So like I learn best by example rather than by reading a lot of theory first. Um, like I'm fine with theory and abstraction once I've seen some concrete examples, but um, like I like to th- see things contextualized. And so I like the idea of writing a book that, you know how a lot of tech books is like, well, I want to learn like a specific topic. Like I want to learn Rails. So I'll go and get a book about Rails. And the, the technology books tend to be very specifically focused, which is not a bad thing per se, but I wanted to try something that is more like, why don't we just learn all sorts of different computer stuff by doing one big project? Because that contextualizes a lot of things. It shows you all these disparate ideas working together and meshing into a whole in a way that I think 
studying individual topics one at a time tends to overlook, if that makes sense. One of the things that was really striking to me about the book, so I think it sidesteps this issue, you know, as also as a technical writer, there's this issue of examples. For a lot of things like teaching testing or teaching object orientation, any example that is like complicated enough to show the value of them is too complicated to sort of present in a textbook. And one of the things about this example is because most of the people reading it, if not all the people reading it, will have familiarity with Git. You don't have to spend a lot of time explaining the example in the same way. And that gives you a tremendous amount of freedom to dig into complicated internals with abandon. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a really tricky thing with like, if you're writing a blog post or giving a talk, like figuring out where your audience is in terms of like, what do they already know and what can you assume on their part and what do you have to explain? So yeah, starting with that sort of, well, this is not a book to teach you how to use Git. I'm assuming you're already familiar with it to some extent. That gives you a big sort of head start on being able to dive into some quite complex topics. Yeah. You know, I was expecting, I often tell people that understanding Git's internals is really important to understanding how Git works. And even given that, I was not prepared for the level of understanding of Git internals that (laughs) awaited me in this book. So was there a particular part of Git's implementation that you were particularly excited to explain because you think it's really clever? That's particularly clever. I I mean, there was a lot of surprises. Well, that was going to be the next question. (laughs) Uh, I went into this knowing like some of the basic concepts, like, you know, what the data model is and, you know, what branches are and to some extent what merging means. But um, a lot of the implementation details were sort of alien to me. Like I didn't know a lot about how it does graph searches or how it does compression or, you know, how the diff algorithms work or any of that stuff. And I don't think those are details that you need to know in order to use Git effectively. Like the amount of knowledge you need is is sort of high level and more conceptual than that. But that's like part of why the scope of the project ended up expanding. It's just because I kept learning more and more interesting things and finding new areas of computation that it touched on that I thought would be interesting to fold into the project. Yeah, this winds up covering a lot of ground. Like Okay. The full disclosure, I have not actually read the entire book yet, although I have read a a pretty good chunk of it around half so far. And, 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 you know, already we've covered a lot of like binary storage methods, um, the diff algorithm. You could imagine somebody shying away from showing these details because they're, they can be kind of hard to wade through. But what comes across, I think in this book is the amount of work that goes into creating a system with the size and functionality of Git and just a ton of techniques for building that kind of large system, I think. Was that an intentional goal to talk about building software in general, or did that emerge over the course of the book? Um, There was some of that there. Like Part of what I wanted to show here was like an element of the process. So I'm particularly interested in like systems that are self-hosting, like programming languages that are written in themselves, that sort of thing. And version control systems are another common example of that. Like Usually, like the first aim if you're writing a version control system is to write enough code that it can manage its own history so you don't have to bootstrap it off of something else. I've been toying with that idea of process for a while because I think there's there's a lot of material out there that will show you like the end result of something. It'll go look at this design pattern or look at this, you know, technique for doing something. And it presents like the end goal and why that has nice properties, but it doesn't show much of like the process of getting there. And I think people get bogged down quite a lot in their work with doing things like 
you know, how do we plan a project out so that we are incrementally delivering value? Like what's, you know, we're not going to, rather than, you know, working for six months and then doing a huge big deployment, like how can we ship the software incrementally so that it makes sense to the user, so that it makes sense to the team building it, so that it fits all of these sort of operational constraints. And also with like big refactoring projects, like if you want to sort of radically change uh, your approach to doing something in your in your code base, I've seen a lot of people get bogged down with like, wait, this is a great big grand project and um, it never gets finished. So you have to sort of learn to prioritize like, well, which things do you really need to refactor? Which things are causing you pain right now? So I kind of like the idea of like, as you go through the book at each stage, there is like something like you're gaining functionality all the time. Um, and it sort of mirrors like the ideal of, you know, the agile process where it's not, well, you have to read the entire book and then you'll have a, a finished working piece of software. It's actually like, you know, if you read one chapter of it, you will have something useful at the end of that. Yeah, I really appreciate the way that the design of the code emerges. You don't start with 20 bajillion classes <laughs> to handle the simple case of like uh, being able to give the status of one file. Like you start with something that almost looks just like a shell script and over the course of it, you refactor, you build up. What was the process of that in the writing of it? How many kind of false starts did you make? Did you build the entire code base first? I, I'm fascinated by that because I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how I would approach that. And I would, I'm very curious as to how you did. See, I had the same worries going into it, like knowing that if I changed my mind about how something should have been done, it would be quite painful to go back and change it. Partly because, you know, editing the history of the project would be tricky. Um, it's not until like quite late on that I developed commands like cherry pick and so on that would allow you to actually go and like reshape the history meaningfully. So for a long time, I just wasn't able to do that. But also that, you know, if I decided something 20 commits ago was not quite the right thing, just going back and changing where that was presented in the book and changing, you know, things like commit IDs that might be mentioned in the book. So like making sure that the text reflects what the repository actually contains. I really wanted to minimize how much I would need to do that. So I think at the start, I remember that I wrote sort of two or three small prototypes for just essentially the, the first chapter, but just like, what's the smallest amount of code that I can do to get a working commit command? And what should that include? Should that, should that include storing trees? Should it include the index and the add command? You know, in what order can I do those things? So there's a little bit of upfront prototyping. And then as I went on, I tried to stay fairly faithful to the, like what you're seeing is like pretty much what my development process actually was. That does vary from chapter to chapter. So there's, there's some material on refactoring and on adding tests and, and, and changing the design. I didn't want readers to sit through a chapter where we build something. And then when you enter the next chapter, you go, actually, we need to completely redo what we just did because it doesn't quite fit this next re requirement. So as I went on, I did try to do a bit more forward planning and prototyping to see how the design would shake out. So it is a bit of a lie in terms of you know, if this was something I was really doing at my day job, there would be more rework and you would, you know, you would just be deploying it and, you know, changing stuff. But to sort of make the story more manageable for the reader, like I did try and do a little bit of forward planning. So there wasn't quite so much churn as you get into the, the later material. Yeah, I, I think the part of it that is watching the design uh, improve is, is really compelling. And, and eventually it turns into some really good examples 
of using test-driven development, which, like I said, that's a hard thing to do in books and, and tried to find an example that is complicated enough. And when you start doing it, which I think it starts with like the status command. Yeah. No, there's yeah. Some, yeah. It's really clear to me why testing is helpful in that case. And I, I just, I really appreciated like that piece of it. Would you say that your approach to building a complicated system changed as a result of seeing or, or trying to build this particular system? I suppose like I've always had a, a variety of approaches to how I build systems and it, it rests very much on how well I think I understand what I'm doing. So yeah, it's curious that you mentioned TDD. So I've, uh, I've written one book previously, which is about testing, but specifically doesn't use TDD for its narrative because I found it completely impossible to try and show a test to the reader before they'd seen the code, especially because there are all these example problems. So they're not things the reader already understands. It's really hard to go, well, obviously these tests should exist when they haven't even seen the problem yet or the implementation. So I found it like narratively much easier to go like, well, the code will be like this and then let's see how we'll, how we'll test it. This was a bit easier because as you said earlier, like if the reader is already familiar with Git, some of those tests will be, I guess, sort of self-evident. Like they will reflect things the user has already seen in their usage of Git. So it's not so hard to explain why they're there. You don't start with testing, but you explicitly bring up TDD at the point where you're starting to address edge cases. It actually isn't in the status part, but it's where you're starting to address edge cases where you think the implementation of the edge case might break the implementation of the normal path. Oh, yeah. it's I guess it's at the point where I'm adding behavior that I wasn't going to be using constantly. So in the, the first few bits, you're just working on the code to create commits, like store files and store trees and all the, the different stuff you can do with that and the add command and the index. And because those are commands that you're using all the time to actually commit to the repository, like you'll notice very quickly if they're broken. So the value of having a test suite at that point wasn't like it wasn't an immediate need. Whereas, yeah, once you start getting into paths where there are more edge cases, things you're not going to run into all the time, that's the stuff where you're like, well, I'm, I'm not going to be sort of automatically testing this all the time as I use it. So I should write down some tests to make sure that, that stuff does work. And it's not so much to do with like being scared that that would break the implementation. It's more that like they're testing use cases that I wasn't going to be hitting in just day-to-day -day usage. But yeah, I, I completely get the point about making it's very hard to explain TDD on an unfamiliar problem by starting with the tests. I, I, I actually also really struggled with that in, in the context of writing a book about JavaScript that I also eventually wound up self-publishing a few years ago, where it wound up being very hard to get the TDD process explained while you're also trying to explain something else. Like you're mm. trying to teach at the time, like uh, JavaScript classes and jQuery and TDD at the same time. And it, yeah. that wound up being very challenging. But in this case, it comes in, it comes in really naturally. Were there stuff about Ruby that you learned in finding ways to implement Git in Ruby? Like how much of the implementation of the, on the Ruby side, did you wind up having to learn to build up? Like there were a couple things in the early chapters that I did not know, or at least did not know well enough, like pack and unpack, which I had heard of, but never really used. Mm. How much of that kind of learning did you do as you were building this? A fair bit. I guess I'd used, I had used unpack and unpack before sort of lightly. I didn't, I wasn't really familiar with like all of their options. So one, one constraint that I had with this is that I didn't want to use any third party gems because I'm trying to target an audience that is not necessarily already familiar with Ruby, doesn't have it installed. 
And so I just wanted to avoid as much, you know, installation pain as possible. I should note that if, if you're not a Ruby developer, the book includes a substantial discussion of how Ruby works as an appendix to let you be able to follow the code. Right. So like part of what fed into my choice of language is that, yeah, I don't want a huge amount of like onboarding pain just to get the tooling installed. So the fact that Ruby comes installed on macOS and is a pretty easy install on uh, Linux distributions made that an appealing choice. And yeah, I didn't want the reader to have to, you know, sit through trying to figure out how to use Bundler and install things just because I see people run into problems with that if they're not already familiar with it. So I had this constraint of like not using any third party code. And that meant that I focused more on the standard library than I think I usually do. Like historically, I've usually used third party tools for parsing command line out arguments, but I tried using option parser for this project and found out that I quite like it. Turns out it's not as complicated to use as I've been led to believe. There's a few syntactic things that I picked up, partly because a lot of my Ruby work is doing open source projects that support a fairly wide range of Ruby versions. So I think there's a few syntactic additions that I hadn't adopted just because I was constrained in that way. But there's stuff like, oh, what's what's the thing called? It's like the, the ampersand dot operator. It's like the, the safe the safe navigation operator. It's called the safe navigation operator or the lonely person operator because Matt thinks it looks like a person lonely staring lonely staring off into the distance. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I hadn't used that much before, and I had, like when I saw that that was added, I was somewhat skeptical about it. But I ended up finding a load of places where it really works in this project. I suppose I was skeptical about it because I didn't like the idea that you should like paper over somewhere that you have a nil. If you're expecting a nil, you should handle it. Right. So just, yeah. So the ampersand dot operator in Ruby is the sticky nil, safe nil operator, where if the left-hand side of it is nil, uh, then it does not raise an exception when trying to call the method on the right side of the dot. It just continues to pass nil through. Yeah. So it simplifies code somewhat at the cost of potentially hiding uh, bad behavior if nils are getting passed through the system. Yeah, and so that's that was my worry is that like you don't want a nil to propagate a long way from where it originates because it can end up causing a problem in some completely remote part of your system and you know you have no idea where that nil came from and what the root cause is. But I think in cases where you are expecting that something will produce nils and you're using the operator quite deliberately. It does end up reading quite nicely for a bunch. So I found quite a lot of use cases for it that I wouldn't previously have considered this time. One of the things that was interesting to me, you know, I've been programming in Ruby for a really long time, but the overwhelming majority of that has been in Rails, um, which means for the most part, like I haven't dealt with things like, you know, string pack and string unpack or, or, or binary data. And, and for the most part, I haven't dealt with like the file system, which is, of course, a, you know, a critical part of this book. Was that pretty much your use your use case too? Like this book does some pretty clever things with lock files and, and whatever to prevent overwriting files. Was that stuff that you discovered in the course of the book or was it stuff that you'd worked with before? I definitely learned a lot about the like the POSIX file API by doing this. An observation that I had as well is that, yeah, at least in my professional work, I mostly do web stuff. And I mean, I write a bunch of other tooling that deals with files, but it's possible to write web apps where like you never touch the file system because anything that's running on more than one box will typically be using a database for its cache and it will probably not be using the disk for its sessions. So web apps typically don't directly talk to the file system. And that's, I just realized that like 
yeah, there's this huge category of programming where you think, oh, files, you know, everything's made of files, everything's a file, you deal with them all the time, but you actually don't deal with them very much at all writing web software, which meant that I hadn't really learned how to use the file API properly. Like, I didn't know about these different options that you have for, like, how a file gets opened and how you use that to, like, prevent race conditions and stuff. So, yeah, like, learning some of that sort of low-level file system API stuff, that was new to me on this project. Yeah, I really liked seeing, like, the little lock file abstraction you build to use .lock files to denote whether somebody else is using the file to prevent overwrites yeah. and ensure consistency. Like that's something, that's a small enough abstraction that you could pull it out and use it in another project. That's something that I just copied wholesale from Git. Like I looked at what it was doing on the file system and I saw these lock files being created and that's how I knew that you should do that. Right. I mean, if you've used Git, you've had the experience where a lock file hasn't been cleaned up and Git complains. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, and I sort of had an inkling of what that meant, but it was interesting to see like the thought process of the kinds of things that can go wrong in a Git-like system, watching you walk through that exercise of, oh, we need to make sure that somebody else hasn't written to that file since we started reading it, um, which is, again, is like as a web, as, as not, as a, somewhat outside my Rails experience. But reading you thinking through those kinds of problems, I found really interesting. Was there like an error case that you wound up having to come back to catch because you didn't think of it? That happens so much that I can't remember any specific instances of it. Um, that's probably a, a fair amount of any rework that I ended up doing, either in prototyping or in going back and revising what I'd put in the in the repository. Was was either like something? Yeah, it was. I hadn't understood some behavior completely enough, which meant that I'd misimplemented it, or that there was a like a substantial design re- revision involved that I didn't think would add anything to the narrative. So I'd go back and redesign how i did something the first time around it's an interesting cautionary note how like very very small features can trigger especially in this kind of like incremental build system that the part of the book that deals with i think it's with when you're dealing with statuses and the ability to denote whether a status is a delete or a modify triggers a substantial design revision because you just hadn't been storing that information yeah and that process in the book of like seeing the very large changes that might potentially be implied by a small feature change. Like I I thought that was really interesting. Um, Is there another example that you like were particularly surprised or, you know, delighted by? Probably more surprised by. So a common complaint that people have about Git is that the user interface is not helpful. I said, not. (laughs) yeah, good, whatever. And I guess that's the origin of people saying, well, you need to understand the internals because you know, the user interface is too hard. And while I somewhat agree with that, like I don't think it's possible to use version control effectively without understanding, like definitely how it does merging, because that's the sort of fundamental thing that version control exists to provide is concurrent editing and merging. It sort of frustrates me the amount that people say, well, you need to know like everything about how it works internally in order to use it. I think my favorite example of where that surfaced was in the checkout command. Um, there's all sorts of ways in which checkout is really complicated because it does a dozen different slightly overlapping things that also uh, overlap with the reset command. But the one that I found was, so when you try to check out and you commit, Git will try to preserve any uncommitted changes that you have as long as the files that you've changed don't differ between the commit you're on now and the commit that you're trying to check out. So if, if you just want to like switch to a different branch that 
has some changes on it and you've changed some files that don't intercept with those, then that's fine. But if you have changed files that the checkout wants to alter, then Git will detect that and say, I'm not checking this out because it will overwrite work that you've done. And in order to report that, there's two things you have to do. You have to you know, detect that those conditions exist and record them. Um, and this comes up in um, reporting merge conflicts as well. So you have to detect that those conflicts exist and, and record that they've happened. And you also have to report them to the user. You have to print them in the user interface. So I got this implementation of machinery for that working, and it produced all the right states in terms of I'd, I'd gone through all these examples with Git and looked at what the final state was on disk, and I'd replicated all of that. And I thought, oh, well, doing, doing the UI will just be like a nice little addition on top of that. It just has to print out what it found. And I ended up completely redesigning the machinery because there are some cases where, depending on what order you do that detection, it will affect what the UI reports. It will like it will affect like exactly how the UI will describe a certain conflict. And so I found like trying to get the, the UI to match what Git said that led me to sort of redesign the machinery that it was built on top of. And that was a, a clear case where like the complexity of the user interface, like if the, if the user interface is like a sort of simple additional layer on top of some machinery that you already have, then you know it's not adding any complexity. But if it makes you redesign the underlying stuff, you know that the UI is introducing complexity that wasn't necessarily there before. And that, that I thought was a really good good example of that, whereas it made me sort of go, wait, the UI for this is actually, in some cases, more complicated than the stuff that it sits on top of. And so it's, it's no wonder that people find it hard to use because it's, it's introducing complexity that isn't essential to the problem. Yeah, I have often found in other contexts that where user interfaces and like logging and things like that or error reporting tends to increase complexity is because it often like dramatically increases the amount of state you need to carry around. I see this in a, in a lot of like payment processing kind of stuff because in payment processing, I have found that it's very, very important to carry and preserve your entire state so that you can reproduce it even if, you know, like the tax laws changed or something like that. Oh, yeah. But that introduces a fair amount of complexity because you have like side effects that you didn't have before because you're 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 holding on to all the state. And I can see I've seen see places in the book where that happens too. So, if you were going to you now have this working git implementation and you made it so that it was essentially like completely interoperable with git and, and as far as the you know, it uses the same file format, it produces this, the same output. But now that you have it, are you interested in trying to change some of the, either the internals or the user interface to explore what other patterns might look like or other user interface structures might look like? Like, What kinds of changes would you make if you had the opportunity? I would definitely change some parts of the UI. So I've mentioned the, the checkout and reset commands. I think those are just overloaded with like what they essentially do is quite simple. Like, So you have your files in your working directory and you have the files in the index and you have the files in the head commit. And most of what checkout and reset do is making those be equal to each other. So if you check out a commit, it makes the workspace and the index equal to the contents of that commit. If you do a, a reset, it makes the index equal to the latest commit. If you do a hard reset, it does that plus making the workspace equal to everything else. So all they're doing is these sort of combinations of making files in different locations be equal to each other. I feel like I want to take the last 30 seconds, print it out, and staple it <laughs> to a wall. That's one of the clearest descriptions of what Git actually does. It's so hidden behind these 
these two commands that do like two dozen different things and it's completely not like they don't reflect either what's going on behind the scenes but i also don't think they mirror any like the way that someone would put their intent you know they don't reflect the use cases for those commands that they're, they're just named they have these sort of arbitrary names and combinations of options and i think people just find them really hard to remember and I, I find them hard to remember and keep my head straight about what each combination of things does they kind of got built up over time by people who weren't paying a whole lot of attention to the overall yeah so i think those need breaking up into like several dedicated things that would be a lot clearer and then you also have like they have a ton of ambiguity so any command that can take both commit names and file names uh, frequently doesn't distinguish between the two syntactically so like when you run git checkout you can follow that by the name of a file or the name of a commit either its id or a branch name or you know branch name followed by like a parent operator or any of that revision syntax that git supports and there's no indication like you're not telling git whether you meant that that was a file name or whether it was the name of a branch or the name of something else and git has to sort of guess so there's a load of cases where if you have multiple things that have the same name it might not do what you expected and that would be like really easy to solve by just putting a command line you know a named command line option for like this is a file this is a commit id and then it would become unambiguous and i think it would become easier to use having done your implementation what are the biggest gaps remaining between it and you know standard git in terms of not just functionality but also in terms of like performance or or, or things like that like how big of a gap is there do you think so in functionality like my aim was to although it did end up being quite a large project and quite a long book I did want to keep it to like a sort of essential core. Like I wanted to get to a place where the project could push itself to GitHub. That was like my bar for it being finished. And I didn't want to do a load of chapters that are just like, well, let's just slog through all these options that are just various uninteresting combinations of things you already understand. Like I wanted each topic to actually introduce a new concept. So there's a lot of functionality that there's loads of commands it doesn't have. It doesn't have, like, there are some things, I think I, I mentioned this in the wrap-up to the book, there are, there are some things you could fairly easily build because they're just combinations of other commands. Like, you can implement, like, the pull command is a combination of fetch and merge. You can simulate most of what rebase does with cherry pick. The clone command is you can do that by running in it and then adding a remote and then fetching from the remote and then setting up your master branch to to mirror that and so there's a few commands i haven't done just because you can get the same effect by running a bunch of other things then there's commands that aren't just combinations of existing other commands but you could fairly easily build them with the machinery that's in the code base so like the the blame command so the 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 blame command in git uh, prints out a file and annotates each line with the name of the last commit that changed it and you can fairly easily build that by using Revlist to find all the commits that changed a file and then using diff to figure out which lines are attributable to each commit. So I've, I've actually, like I prototyped a version of that and it's sort of a couple of screens full of code. So there's a fair amount of, you know, there's a huge amount of functionality that I haven't done that there's plenty of scope for you to have a go at having, you know, now you've got all the, the building blocks. And I think there's just a fair amount of stuff that I decided was out of scope. Like I haven't done submodules. I haven't done like various things to do with like patches and filter branch. Submodule seems like a nightmare. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're a thing that people complain about constantly and I don't see a lot of people using. So 
I think a lot of things I decided not to do were, were either they're just things I don't see people frequently using, or I think they wouldn't really introduce any fundamentally new, new concepts to the reader. Do you have any interest of of like putting this up as an ongoing project for people to contribute implementations of those things? Like I could see that there would be value in like a Ruby language reference interpretation, just because it would be more might be more comprehensible than the C reference implementation. Um, but I could also see where that would be a huge pain in the neck. So is that something you're interested in doing? So I'm not especially interested in managing this like the code base as an ongoing concern. You know, it's, I don't intend it for anybody to use it for a production work. It's it's an educational example. What I have seen a lot more interest in from readers is like people are doing their own implementations in other languages, which is really satisfying to me because I, I really didn't want to, to restrict this to, to a Ruby audience. So seeing people follow it and do their own like complete new implementations, I think is really interesting. Oh, what interesting. What languages are people trying it in? So I know people are working on Node.js, Elixir, Rust, Clojure. Those are the ma- the main ones that I've heard of so far. And I'm currently trying to learn Rust, so I may end up doing my own attempt at that. Yeah, that seems like it might be a good one to spring on this. Because it's sort of once you, if I'm trying to learn a new like language or or platform, I often reach for a, a problem I already understand that's just non-trivial enough to be challenging. Because then I, I don't have the you know the added workload of trying to understand a new concept i'm just going how would i write this program i already know in something else and there's a huge amount of scope for this and i this was partly inspired by gary bernhardt's from scratch videos because um, i think that i really like the idea of demystifying a thing that you use every day especially in my background as uh, like coming from from web development there's this like really crummy culture of like this hierarchy of like whether you're a quote-unquote real programmer or not that like if you're a if you're a web developer, then you're you're not like hardcore enough to understand like stuff written in C or like low level things. And like there's this whole culture that tells you that you're just not smart enough to understand all these tools you use. That they're sort of magic, and you shouldn't worry about it. And like I like the idea of like sweeping that aside and going like, no, you're plenty smart enough to understand any of this stuff given enough time. Like none of it's magic it takes time to learn this stuff but it's not fundamentally beyond your abilities i think that what happens is that the the c implementations of this stuff and, and i like i learned low-level languages as a student but have never used them professionally what happens is is that you, you, there's a ton of like incidental complexity that comes from a c implementation of something like this in memory management and just like details that are are sort of incidental to actually understanding what it's doing and i think that like pulling these kinds of implementations into a tool that is higher level and a little bit easier to understand taking the whatever performance hit you might wind up getting. Like, I think that's a huge advantage. Like, I think that's a, a great thing. And I, I, you know, ran from low level languages cause I just didn't like the, the, the high ceremony, a lot of incidental complexity stuff. I just, I couldn't get away from it fast enough. Yeah. I appreciate being able to see these things in languages that are, are more approachable, I think to, to more people. Mm. I definitely had that experience, like trying to read the the Git source, especially because like part of the received wisdom about definitely like, yeah, people who write C and like certain people in that community is like, you know, they get positioned as these sort of genius wizard people who can do things you can't possibly understand and are, yeah. are utterly brilliant. I think a lot of it is just, there's a lot of code in Git that's hard to read just because it's sort of the polar opposite of what I've sort of been trained to do in like 
object-oriented design where you, you'll have these like functions that are hundreds of lines long and are you know doing quite a lot of you know all it's c so it's all essentially just shunting numbers around and there's no like clear labeling of like conceptually what is going on so there's various bits if you the, the later bits of the book that deal with pack compression i think that something that is like a few functions in the the c code base ended up being i don't know seven or ten classes in my version because you'll realize this is one little loop in the middle of this huge function is actually models a specific concept that is worth naming and pulling out. So there's a fair amount of going like, you know, just reading all this data being shunted around and trying to tease distinct concepts out of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of trying to deal with code at a, at a conceptual level to make it easier to understand. I was laughing before because I had have had the experience of sitting next to a fairly accomplished developer in the C and Ruby world who was trying to explain to me how, and a, a somewhat bemused, very, very senior developer, how he was the the only good C programmer in the world. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's so much bad mythology surrounding C that... That's a groan of recognition, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely, like, there's this huge aura about it, but you have to be a genius to be able to do it. And, like, A, you don't have to be, but also, like, the people that claim to be are just as capable of making really bad mistakes with it as anybody else. Right. And I think that one of the reasons, like the, the one of the reasons there's a mystique around having to be a genius in C is because it's so like unnecessarily complicated. There, there's so much more stuff. Unnecessary is not quite the right word necessary. It's not quite the right word, but there's so much stuff in a, lo, in a language like C, there's so much stuff that you need to keep in your head that other languages might make it even a, 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 another system level language like Rust. It makes it somewhat easier to manage in the code and and because of that like i used to have this conversation with people who were c fans and they would talk about like they want to have sharp knives and i was like yeah i, I don't mind sharp knives but i prefer them to have handles is pretty much <laughs> feels about it. yeah so i first learned c maybe three years ago just sort of shortly before starting this project and um my thing that i wrote to try and cement my knowledge is so i maintained the websocket driver library for ruby and i thought i'd try porting that to c because it's a I think I understand fairly well and it's, you know, binary format parsing is sort of a really, you know, it's right in C's wheelhouse. And I think the experience that I had doing that was like, if you're working alone and you have completely uninterrupted time to focus on what you're doing, it's perfectly possible to apply enough discipline to write C like reasonably okay and, and not write any hugely obvious bugs. The thing that I realized after letting it sit for a bit is that I would never want to maintain it. Like there's a, there's a certain amount of like you only manage to apply that discipline because you had the whole thing in your head at the time. It's very hard to compartmentalize stuff, and it's very easy to introduce mistakes later when you come back to the code base. So as soon as you add more people or interrupted time or anything that sort of splits the knowledge of the code base up across people or time, at that point I start feeling completely unconfident in my ability to use C safely. Yeah, I think that is very similar to my experience. Where can people buy this book and where can people find you online if they want to talk to you about it or talk to you about Git or about C or anything else? You can get the book at shop.jcoglin.com. I also have my previous book, JavaScript Testing Recipes, available. If you want to catch me online, I am mountain underscore ghosts on Twitter. It's probably the best place to get hold of me. And if you do find that Twitter handle, uh, the name attached to it is not going to be James Coglin because you never use your own name. I no, I've not used my my actual name on Twitter for a while. Yeah, it was it was uh, some time before I think I knew your name. 
but I do now. Uh, anyway, thanks for being on, on the show. Uh, the book is extraordinary, and I'm really glad that you had the the wherewithal to do all of it because I'm not sure I would have. And people should go out and take a look at it because it's really interesting. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was lovely. Tech Done Right is on the web at techdoneright.io, on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right, and available wherever you get podcasts. The show is a production of TableXI, which is on the web at tablexi.com and on Twitter at tablexi. The show is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. I'm at Noel Rapp on Twitter, and it is edited by Mandy Moore, who's at the Ruby Rep on Twitter. If you like the show, please tell a friend, a colleague, a pet, an enemy, your social network, your boss, my boss, me. All of those people, telling any of those people would be extremely helpful, and a review on Apple Podcasts helps people find the show. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right.